What if bridges could talk to you? What would they say? Is it possible to 3D print a heart? These are the types of questions that Carnegie Mellon engineering researchers are answering, testing, and applying to the real world. This podcast series will bring them all together. People don't normally put the words electronics and edible in the same sentence. We're told from a very early age that putting electronic devices in our mouth, let alone swallowing them, is not a good idea. But in this episode of Make It Real, I'm talking with a professor who is working towards a world in which edible electronics could help diagnose or even treat human disease. My name is Chris Bettinger, and I'm an associate professor of biomedical engineering and material science and engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. So Chris, you just had an article published in the journal Trends in Biotechnology, and the article talks about edible electronics, which are sort of an alternative to medical implants uh, that are placed into your body through surgery. Can you just start by talking a little bit about how the concept of eating these devices came about? Like, what is the advantage of eating them over just receiving traditional implants? So really, one of the challenges is anytime you implant a material, a foreign material uh, inside the body, you're going to evoke this very predictable tissue response. So it's the same kind of response that you get if you cut your finger and you get a scab. So it turns out that that happens uh, really anytime you implant anything in vivo, be it a pacemaker, a deep brain stimulation device, or a biosensor. And so that can be challenging because that can either form a barrier that precludes delivery of the therapy, and it could also obfuscate measuring of things like glucose concentrations. So basically you have this kind of masking of the device from the thing you're, very, you're trying to stimulate or measure. So that's a, that's a big challenge. So then a potential solution here is eating these medical devices? Yeah, so again, your body is basically designed to handle foreign material when it's in the gut, right? And so if you can think about deploying therapies in that manner, then you can obviate a lot of these predictable challenges with tissue biomaterials interactions. Wow, so it sounds like the GI tract is pretty welcoming to these devices. The GI tract's pretty tolerant, but again, you take those same materials and you put them underneath your skin, you get a completely different a different reaction. And this is why when I'm teaching my, my class, I, I, I sincerely object to the term biocompatibility of material because the biocompatibility quote unquote is context dependent. I take the same material, you eat it, you get a completely different reaction, perhaps more benign than if you take the same exact material and implant it in your in, in tissue. Interesting. So I'm assuming these edible devices don't have a steering wheel telling them where to go. So how, how do they know where to go? Yeah, that's a great question. And the first most obvious application for these kinds of devices is basically a smart controlled release system, right? So if you have uh, you have a smart pill that's enabled electronically and has things like pH sensors, which, which people like us and others have, have looked at. So pH sensors are, are established technology. You can have timing circuits, other components that can really basically, you can use those as fiducials to figure out where you are, right? So you can say, you know, if if I've been in the body for, or the GI tract for six hours, and this is the pH, you can, with pretty good certainty, say, okay, therefore I am at this part of the GI tract, right? So active steering, I think, is an interesting idea for things like, um, for optics and cameras, but for drug delivery, we see that as kind of a, an unnecessary complication. 
All right, so given that these devices will only be moving through the GI tract, is that the only part of the body that it can apply the therapy to? Yeah, that's a good question. And so I think the exciting part about this particular application space is we're learning more about how the GI tract dictates a lot of interesting um, broadly reaching disease states. For example, um, with the advent of things like the microbiome, right? So now understanding that, um, again, the cause and the effect relationships are still unclear at this point, but, um, but there are definitely correlations between uh, microbial composition in the gut and things like inflammation and neural cognition and all kinds of interesting kind of, it's, it's actually kind of scary how, how these, these are linked in some way. Again, a lot of that's being teased out by, um, you know, by, by other labs that focus on the biology, right? But our premise is that there's a lot of disease states that you can affect through interactions with, with the gut. So there's things like vaccines and there's things like microbiome modulation and even controlled release of high value therapeutics to the, to the GI tract, right? That could, be, that could be pretty interesting. Okay, so let's play make-believe for just a moment. Can you give me an example of an edible device that I might eat in the future? Like, why am I taking it? And where is it going in my body? Yeah, so uh, maybe I'll, 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 I'll answer that question. That's a great question. Take me on the magic school bus. Yeah, right? that's right. So, um, so right now, actually, there's a company out in, in California called Proteus. And they make, uh, they fabricate little silicon uh, sensors that are affixed to pills. They could be something as... as um, as simple as like a like an Advil or an aspirin, and they want to sense when and how often you're taking your medication. That device uses a little electrochemical couple that lasts for about maybe um, anywhere from like one minute to nine minutes, and all it does is send it sends a few bits of information to a patch that's outside your skin, and says, Daniel, you know, you took your pill at. 9:54 a.m. and maybe it sends a text message to your family and your doctor and says you know you're taking your medication when you should. And so what we work on in my laboratory is we ask the question, well, what if you had to have that device last for a really long time, not just a couple minutes, maybe two hours or or 20 hours, right? And so I think that's kind of where our recent invention of of these new battery chemistries kind of comes into the mix. And so basically what we found out is that um, from our familiarity with some interesting natural materials, we actually discovered that uh, melanin pigments, so that's the same pigments in your hair and your skin and your eyes, so they can actually serve as an interesting, at least half of a battery, one electrode of, of a two electrode system. And so the idea there is basically, well, if we have a battery that can operate in water and it uses benign uh, cations, then that might be amenable for for uh, a power supply to drive these electronics in this application. And so that was, that was kind of a fun, that's, that's been our, our most recent contribution to this, this kind of this emerging space. Um, Keeping these devices powered for longer than an hour. Yeah, exactly, right? So how do you do that? And, and how do you think about materials that maybe aren't optimized for things like cost and performance, but they're optimized for things like toxicity and operating in strange environments and aqueous electrolytes and things like this. So again, these battery chemistries are very different than the ones you might see in your cell phone, your laptop, right? Because those need to last for 
for you know think about what your laptop is doing it's 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 insane that that can run in a battery right and 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 the devices that we envision again maybe they don't have to have sophisticated computational elements to it they can be quite simple but they have to be robust and we have to sort of reduce the risk to the patient Okay, so let's say in two or three years, your lab figures out how to keep these devices powered for several hours. Uh, just describe to me what these devices would do over the course of several hours. Yeah, so that, that's a great question. I think the first order application, the, the nearest, most impactful application, in, in my opinion, is, is controlled release. A lot of people think about controlled releases as prolonging release, right? So a lot of pharmaceutical companies will say we want you know we we have fast acting relief or we have kind of a, this extended release of something like that and that's fine but a lot of times you don't actually want extended prolonged release maybe you want just a precise amount of a payload delivered to a precise location at a precise time in a, in a bolus in a burst right and so we think the idea of using these kind of ingestible electronics could achieve a different kind of delivery, right? Um, and so we think this has inter interesting applications in, again, vaccines, I think is a good one. We, so we also think that delivering specific bacteria to precise locations in the, in the GI tract could also be interesting in, in modulating the microbiome. So so things things where you need to sort of deliver a bolus in a precise location, that's, that's the, I think, the real value-added component to this technology. This podcast has been brought to you by Carnegie Mellon University's College of Engineering. I'm Daniel Tatchik. <laughs>